Hello, I'm Nance Haxton, and this is the Griffith University podcast, A Middle Ground. A Middle Ground provides independent analysis by Australia's best political scientists and policy researchers. With the federal election now fading into our distant memories and a new leader for the Labor Party, the numbers have firmed up for how this term of parliament will look and what that means for our democratic process. To give us the insight on this and whether we can ever trust political polling again, we're speaking to Griffith University political commentator Paul Williams. Oh, look, I was very surprised. I don't think there was a serious commentator in this country that uh, did forecast a majority government for Scott Morrison and the coalition. Uh, we did entertain some view that they, they might struggle back with minority government when the polls really started to turn towards the coalition in that last week. And indeed, uh, you know, in Queensland, certainly it was 50-50 in two-party preferred vote, but no one really picked up uh, how low Labor's primary vote was going to be. Um, it did actually sink to about 27 points, which is not that much better than the Anna Bly wipeout at the state election in 2012. So no one really picked it up, picked it up that it was going to be quite so dice. Were there any particular seats that um, surprised you as well in that mix? Well, look, I was surprised that Cathy O'Toole did lose Herbert, given that she's been a very strong and active local member and she was a great champion for the workers who uh, lost out when Queensland Nicol went belly up. But again, regional Queensland was always going to be a tough hold for Labor, given that, uh, yes, we, we, we all know that the elephant in the room was Adani and still is Adani. Uh, and that's why we've seen uh, Anthony Albanese make some very loud noises about Adani since. And, and similarly, Anastasia Palaszczuk making even louder noises about Adani. Labor cannot be seen to be anti-coal mining any longer. So, for example, in Anthony Albanese's new shadow cabinet, um, he's promoted Joel Fitzgibbon to talk up Adani and coal. And, uh, and at the same time he's promoted uh, Dr Jim Chalmers from Queensland as Shadow Treasury Spokesman and, and Dr Chalmers also has come out in favour of coal mining in Queensland. So there's no doubt that the uh, emphasis now, Labor's emphasis at state and federal level is to get back into the coal mining business. So you can see that even from Anthony Albanese's choice of his Shadow Cabinet you think? Oh indeed there's no doubt the Shadow Cabinet is I think rather good Shadow Cabinet. Mm. I think it mirrors Scott Morrison's quite well. There are five Queenslanders in the Shadow Cabinet. No uh, accident there. No accident there indeed. Uh, and, and Anthony Albanese has been at pains to have a 50-50 uh, gender balance in shadow cabinet. So mm -hmm. all went, it's, it was a pretty good Morrison cabinet. Scott Morrison did promote a good cabinet, and I, but I think Anthony Albanese's is just as good. Uh, and I think the, the next parliament's going to be a very interesting contest on that basis. So looking at this result, really, what have we? What can we learn from this? Are polls just completely unreliable now? No, they're not. I'm still a great defender of opinion polls. And there's no doubt that there have been a sampling error and the problem of herding. The idea that perhaps opinion pollsters have been tweaking polls. Um, again, this is an argument that's been put forward. We don't know whether this is the case or not. But and how so, would that be? Well, the case is that what the argument is, is that um, opinion pollsters, they do it for commercial gain. So they want to be accurate and they don't want to be outliers at, or, you know, in an outlying poll and to, to be so wrong that they lose the confidence of their next client. Mm. So it's a very tough thing for a pollster to publish a poll that's way outside the norm of other of their polling rivals. So the argument's been put, and again, we haven't got any evidence of this, but the argument's been put that there's something called herding going on, where pollsters like to tweak results in order to stay within the pack. Notwithstanding those claims, um, there's no doubt that there's some sort of sampling problem going on. Mm -hmm. And again, a very good argument's been made. We still don't know definitively why the polls were out, and the pollsters are now doing, you know, they're, they're, they're staff full of statisticians and mathematicians 
politicians, and they they will work out exactly is why. Is it down to? I've heard people say the lack of landlines now. Is it as something as simple as that? No, it's not. That was a problem mm. a few years years ago. But mm. all polling companies now poll um, use mobiles as well. Okay. So it certainly say six, seven, eight years ago, it was a problem because they were only polling older Australians who had landlines and they were missing out the youth voter who has mobiles. So that has since been fixed, that problem, and that all reputable polling agencies now use mobiles as well as landlines. The problem seems to be, at least this is an argument that's been advanced and it seems to have good credence, is that um, they're polling only those politically engaged people, what we might call high information voters. Because if the phone rings, especially if it's a robo-poll, people are less inclined to engage with a robo-poll. But if the phone rings at dinner time, and so many of these polls are in the evening when people are at home, mm-hmm. whether it's on a mobile or a landline, and people are preparing dinner, they've got kids to look after, it's so often that the disengaged voter or the voter who really only gives a cursory glance at politics is going to hang up, especially if it's a robo-poll, and not bother. And the only people who are engaged with robo-polls, therefore, are people who think, oh, yes, I'm very interested in this election, and therefore it tends to skew the audience. Now, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a, a terrible dramatic skew of, of the sample but if it's just if it just get two or three percentage points more people who are more interested in politics than the Australian average and again we might say that the highly educated voters uh, are disproportionately um, supportive of parties of the centre left so you might get a higher proportion of Labor and Green voters. It doesn't mean to, it doesn't have to take too many voters mm-hmm. in order to tip the balance. Polls are only outside their margin of error by about half a percentage point but well, that's half a percentage point too much but it's the primary vote that they got wrong particularly in states like Queensland. So mm. whether it was a late swing, it probably wasn't. I think the swing was coming through the campaign. Especially uh, with all the pre-polls. Oh, indeed. That's mm. right. The pre-polls didn't seem to be that different from the um, the, the polling on, on, on May 18th. So I don't think a late swing was responsible. It seems to be a sampling error that opinion pollsters are picking up too many what we call high information voters who might gravitate slightly more proportionally to the centre-left. And there must be a bit of gnashing of teeth now, though, from these companies about how to respond, really, and to restore the faith of people in their results. Oh, indeed. They've got an enormous uh, amount of egg on their face. Um, and again, there's a commercial element to this. I mean, they don't want to lose money because most of polling, uh, these polling uh, firms they don't make their money out of election polling. That's just a pretty much a side craft. They do um, product polling and industry polling and you know a whole range of things that don't reach the, the news media. They do lots of private polling for firms and, 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 and marketing companies companies. So that's where their real bread and butter is. They don't want to be seen as uh, incompetent or inaccurate because they're going to lose these big contracts with these pri- with private industry. You mentioned the youth vote before. Was that really the surprise package of this election, do you think, Paul? Oh, indeed. I was, I was really heartened when I saw uh, when rolls closed in April that Australian enrolment had reached a record. 97% of, Aust- of eligible Australians were on the roll and of 18 to 24-year-olds, 88%. Now, that still leaves about half a million Australian citizens over the age of 18 who weren't on the roll. So that's half a million too many. But we were moving in the right direction in terms of civic engagement. I'm now quite disheartened Mm -hmm. to find that turnout is probably the lowest since 19. 22. And this is in a nation with compulsory voting. Indeed. So again, uh, uh, countries around the world would look at Australia and say, but you had a turnout of almost 91%. You should 
pat yourself on the back. But for us, that's not good enough. So up until 2010, we were seeing a turnout of around you know 94, 95% consistently, decade on decade. But something happened in 2010, which most people would remember. That's, of course, when Kevin Rudd was deposed by Judy Gillard. Uh, and uh, voters woke, went to bed one night with one prime minister and woke up the next morning with another prime minister. And we can correspond that event to not just things like a, a fairly rapid decline in the number of people who are turning out to vote. In 2013, for example, we had 93%. And in 2016, we had 20, 91%. And this election looks like 90%. But we also see it correspond with a collapse in faith in Australian democracy. Yeah, do you think that's where the disengagement began, even for young voters who would have been quite young at the time, Oh, I abso- absolutely. There's no mm. there's no doubt that um, it's across the board. You, do, you know, it's not just 18, 24-year-olds who are, who are saying they're disengaged or distrustful of Australian democracy. Mm. Uh, Lowy polls, for example, have shown consistently for years that only 60% of Australian adults say they're satisfied with democracy as a political system. Only 40% of 18 to 24-year-olds are satisfied with democracy. That's a minority. Mm. So more than half of Australians' young voters uh, under the age of 24 feel that democracy isn't necessarily the best form of government. Now, that's very alarming. Because I think Labor was really hoping that it would be these millennials that would get them over the line, but that just didn't happen, did it? Well, it's, it's, I dare say that they weren't uh, they were fairly nonplussed with the coalition as well. And so many of these uh, under-24s just stayed at home. And I think, again, it comes back to something we call in political science issue salience. When voters hear an issue, how sticky is that issue in their mind? Does it stick in their mind and motivate them to get to the ballot box? And what order, a cognitive order, do they issue that? Now, for Labor and the Greens, they were hoping that voters, the highest salient issue would be things like equality, wage growth, infrastructure, services, clean energy, the things that Labor and the Greens have campaigned on heavily over three years. But as it turned out, things like stability after chopping and changing so many prime ministers, economic growth, employment, all the things that the coalition has been good at over the years, those things were much more salient, much more sticky. And I think a lot of young people, well, we saw, again, we saw a surge of young people get on the rolls uh, in 2017 in order to engage with the same-sex marriage plebiscite because this is a sticky issue for them. This is an issue that is highly salient and it gets in their psyche. That engaged them. Absolutely, Mm. they're very engaged. Mm. But and so therefore they got in the role and they stayed in the role. Here comes along an election campaign that's probably the dreariest that I've seen in all my years of watching elections, and that's over 35 years of watching elections at state and federal level. It was probably the dreariest campaign I've ever seen, and led to by you know two pretty dull uh, middle-aged men. Um, so it was not a very. I don't think anyone can say it was an inspiring campaign. And I think if there is a young voter who's not who, who, who's who's not that passionate about politics anyway, you can see why the. Uh, an election that's dominated by tax talk, for example, debate around tax. Uh, you can see yes, why and young franking credits and franking cre- exactly. So you can see why people really disengaged, and uh, so I'm hoping and they'd rather get a letter from the electorate office than than actually go and vote. Well, indeed, and uh, you know, so there's going to be the, the electoral commission is going to be issuing many, many fines at twenty dollars a piece. But uh, you know, I'm hoping that this is a glitch. I'm hoping that uh, it, you know, if and when the uh, the next campaign kicks off, uh, that we have something more um, uh, groovy. Something you know, something a bit, bit sexier for young people to to engage with. Well, otherwise, it's a worrying trend, isn't it? If it continues, really. Oh, it's a terribly worrying trend. Again, it's not just this idea of people thinking, "Oh, politics or voting isn't for me." But when it's coupled with this sense, "Oh, democracy is not really working, is it?" That's when voters become susceptible to the fringe element.
performance. And again, it's magnified mm-hmm. through social media, where you know that social media's maxim is person A's ignorance is equal to person's person B's expertise. Uh, everyone has a voice. All opinions are equal. You know, that's a very uh, warm and fuzzy democratic thing to say. But we know that not all opinions are equal. Uh, you know, you have someone who's talking up, you know, um, myths of racial superiority or or fears of getting your children vaccinated. You know, this can be a very disrupting influence on voters. Is this going to be a memorable election looking back, do you think? Well, look, I think 2022 is, is really going to be an election to watch. And uh, it seems to mm. me that this election was very much a rejection of Bill Shorten and taxes, not necessarily a rejection of Labor. And I suspect that there's an enormous amount of ground for Anthony Albanese to make up a lot of low-hanging fruit mm. for, for what we might call um, uh, Albanese's pragmatic populism, his ability to talk to working-class people in the in the regions. So my suspicion is that there's no great passion for Scott Morrison or the coalition. There, it was it wasn't a loving embrace of the coalition. It was merely a, it was a grudging support in order to keep Bill Shorten out of the lodge. So my argument is that watch out for 2022. The rubber band of electoral wrath is being pulled back, uh, and uh, it's being pulled back even further. So by the time we come, we come around to 2022, it could, the rubber band might snap back in such a way that we might see something equivalent to the John Howard wipeout of Labor in 1996. And hopefully our pollsters might be a bit more onto it by well, then. And that's the key issue. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, live and, I live and breathe opinion polls, so now I have to sort of uh, navigate the political landscape with one eye on opinion polls and, and perhaps one eye uh, on the crystal ball instead. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us on A Middle Ground, Paul. My pleasure. That was Griffith University political commentator Paul Williams on the ramifications of the federal election result. This is a middle ground where the great political debates take place. One of the Liberal National Party members to benefit from that swing admits he was surprised by the result. Federal member for Leichhardt, Warren Inch, was returned for his eighth term in the far north Queensland seat. And he says he's got much that he wants to achieve before he goes. I am now by far the longest serving member for Leichhardt. But another interesting one that sort of slipped through the cracks, and I was actually reminded of it by a former speaker, Harry Jenkins, when I came back in 2010. I am the first member of the House of Representatives since 1901 to have voluntarily retired from my seat and then recontested my same seat for my same party and won. So in more than a century, that's, in more that than is a an century. achievement. And so, you know, I mean, that, uh, I, I was not aware of that. And I think it's, it's one of those things that most people would not be aware of. Is that part of what you put your longevity down to, having that background as a, as a bushy? I think so. I mean, I, I, when I first came into, uh, uh, when I was elected in 1996, you may find this quite surprising because everybody talks about politicians and having their noses in the trough, their snouts in the trough, I think is the word they use. <laughs> <coughs> Would you believe when I was elected in 1996, I'd only just joined the party and applied for pre-selection, a matter of weeks before pre-selection, and then I was elected in 1996 in March, and I didn't realise that we actually got paid. I honestly didn't know and certainly had no idea what sort of payment you're going to get. And at that stage, I think it was $96,000 a year, uh, which sounds a lot. Um, 
but in, in actual fact, you know, it's a seven-day-a-week job and long hours, and, and people forget that you've got a, you've a family that you've also got to support. People often, if they've got political aspirations, will join a political party at a relatively young age, whether it be a university or otherwise. They will go and work as a staffer for a member or senator to build their skills set and understanding, or they'll come from the trade union movement. That's generally how they build their, their skills. Um, understand that I had a crocodile farm and two, two cattle stations. I spent a lot of my time in remote areas. I'd never been a member of a political f uh, party. So I had no experience in politics. And when I came in, I mean, I, I started, first of all, the, the person that I defeated wasn't particularly keen on vacating the office. And so he delayed the process for an extensive period of time. Unfortunately, on the Saturday, after the, the, when the vote is declared on a Saturday evening, people start ringing on Sunday saying, righty you're the local member, fix my problem. And I operate for the first few weeks out of the back of my work ute and uh, with a mobile, uh, an old mobile phone that was pretty marginal. Um, while I was waiting to vacate the office, uh, my, my uh, predecessor to vacate the office, you can imagine, and I had no idea what, the, what my job was. I, I was told that I was going to get paid and that I was on the payroll. I was told that I was able to employ some staff. So I had to put staff on that had no experience. Not one of my staff had any experience in being involved in running a politi uh, a, a, an electorate office. And we had to wait several weeks for the individual to vacate. I then inherited his car. Uh, which he'd left behind in a very dirty condition. And when I walked into the office, you can imagine how I felt when the place was totally empty. There wasn't even a paperclip. And you think, where do you start? And I had started to employ a couple of people um, that had no background whatsoever in, 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 in electorate office. And so that's where I started, and, and there was nowhere Here to go. Yeah, eight terms later. Eight terms later, I mean, which is, I mean, the political longevity is about six years. Mm. So I reflect over about 22, 23 years, I mean, with that break in between, and, and, and another three years to the future. So I think that, I suppose you could say I'm a bit like the old crocodile <laughs> that I used to farm. I, I'm a survivor. So what do you hope to achieve in this final term? Well, look, I've got, I got a lot of things that I want to do. I mean, um, from a local perspective, the first thing I want to do is to make sure that um, we get that 100% um, uh, renewable microgrid into the Daintree. I think, you know, can you imagine being the first community that is that is actually powered through a, through a microgrid with uh, solar-enabling um, uh, hydrogen energy? Fantastic. And you know these poor buggers have been without. They've been vilified and ostracised and and penalised for so many years. It's about time when they, the dice started to roll in their favour. And so I'm very very keen. That's been. I mentioned it in my maiden speech. I, in fact, I I have my maiden speech sitting here somewhere. Oh, I, really? I I have. <laughs> I, I, I may well be here. Oh. No, it's not here. But I, but I have got my maiden yeah. speech. There it is in your briefcase. There it is in my hand. <laughs> Look the, at the that. The 20th of the 6th, 1996. And how have you gone? How, how have you changed from that time, do you well, think? Well, significantly. I mean, when I go through this, in all honesty, I think I've ticked every single box. 
in in relation, you know. Well, that must feel good. Even travelling to Cooktown, only 330 kilometres north of Cairns, there are 75 kilometres of very rough unsealed roads. Serious neg- it's all sealed now. We're now sealing all the Peninsula Development Road, again an, an, a, 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 an initiative of mine. I talk about Japanese encephalitis taking the lives of people in the Torres Strait. We've now got the... Uh, We've now got the uh, National Institute of Tropical Health and Medicine and they've got a campus up in the Torres Strait and they've, you know, we haven't lost any people since there. So there's a lot of opportunities in here to talk about uh, Torres Strait. Uh, yeah, I think you were very um, worried about tuberculosis the last time we met you a year ago. I would like to. I want to make sure that the funding is locked in to continue the Peninsula Development Road because I want to see it sealed to the to the tip to the Seychelles Wharf. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely critical for me, and it's not negotiable. I want money to continue into the seawalls, and we've already started that process to make sure that we actually get the work physically done. Not negotiable. We got the. We've got the extension of the National Highway here. It's up to the state government now. This is to the Smithfield Roundabout. The state government have got to put their 20% up. And I'd like to see them prioritise that project so we do it sooner rather than later. The same goes with the $60 million to establish a university hospital. That's the federal component. The state government have got to now step up to the mark and do that daintry power. I mean, it's just its just un- unbelievable that here we are, we're putting a million dollars in to get the shovel-ready project finished within 12 months, and only two days ago, the state government hosted a meeting in, Cooked, in, uh, in Mossman where they invited people in to talk about putting a million dollars up to do another consultation, pro- community consultation process. It just beggars belief. But so they're, they're my local projects that I'm really, you know, marine, marine precinct and a whole range of other things. But they're the ones that I, I can tick off making sure the paws and claws gets done, the weeper, animal shelters, and there's lots of things. But when you start to come to national ones, and this is the point that I make, mm-hmm. uh, that's my plastics. Now, I've had for the last year or more, I've had the anti-Adanis, the Save the Reefers and the unions associated with them and all the activists, you know, the WWF and the, the Save the Coral Sea marine, marine mobs, all outside my office, <coughs> processing on a weekly, sometimes bi-weekly basis. Then you got the you, you you got these activists then that started to get into the minds of our school children, and give them one side of the story, frighten the living bejesus out of them. In my view, that's child exploitation or child abuse, <coughs> but nevertheless, are effective. <coughs> Again, my office was the only one was targeted, and you got all these kids out there jumping up and down. Some of them so emotional that they're almost in tears because they've had the the bejesus frightened out of them, but writing graffiti all over my, all over, and slogans all over my footpath, which when they leave, people come in, they hose it down, and all that material gets washed into the drains, and guess where it ends up? In the Barrier Reef Lagoon. <coughs> now, I invited some of those children, six of them, the leaders, so-called leaders, into my office. Uh, because I was interested, because they demanded they wanted to see me as a local member, and I was quite happy to uh, to facilitate that. But I did say to them, no parents, no teachers, and no activists. You kids come in here yourself. Now, I knew that if they came in here, there's no way in the world they're going to listen to anything. I've got to say, I'm only a bloody politician. What would I know? So 
I organise for a marine scientist, a marine biologist and teacher, and also an, an operator that's been operating here, making a livelihood out of the reef for the last 35 years. Now, I suspect that these people, there's four of them in total, have an understanding, a, quite a comprehensive understanding of the reef and its ecology and what's happened in the last many, many years. And I thought, well, they can give it a bit of an idea. So these kids come in, they sat down, they were quite defiant. What I noticed, however, that they didn't bring an activist, but two doors down, the activists were standing there grooming these kids before they came into my office, and he was waiting out the back here for them when they went out to debrief them. That's sad. That's really sad. They sat down here, and I said, Rightio, let's have a chat. All they could do was chant three slogans. Save the reef. Stop Adani and 100% renewables by 2030. Now, when you tried to drill down into that, there was blank stares. When the qualified experts started to offer a different perception, there was hostile rejection of it. They were so brainwashed in what they were doing, they just didn't want a bar of it. Now, one of, the, one of the youngsters was so petrified about the future of the reef being dead in 10 years, she was in t almost in tears. But she'd never been to the reef. So the activist done his job. I think he should be in jail for child abuse. Does it reflect a broader <coughs> concern around Cairns and, and this North Queensland electorate, though, about the reef? If Adani does go ahead, do you think? No. No, I mean, there's, a, there's an element of it. But look... Getting back to the plastics, I saw that and that really worried me with these kids because you send your kids for a balanced education, you think they get both sides of the argument, let them form their own. That's the whole idea of it. Feed them the information, don't brainwash the kids and let them make balanced views. That's what I wanted from my children when they go to school. I want them to challenge their teachers, get another perspective, but it's not happening. I continually say to these people that are saving the reef, we don't need to save the reef. The, the reef is going. Now, it has challenges. <coughs> it's definitely got challenges. We need to manage it. We need to manage it brilliantly. We are already through Ames and Goompa and all these other, through James Cook University, all of those that are involved, we are recognised as the best in the world. Not one of, we are the best in the world. We get, we get representation from all over the world where any, any country that has an interest in a reef, they come to us to learn how to do it. World's best practice. Not one of, the best. Why can't we have world's best practice in relation to capturing pl discarded plastics from our marine and our land environment? and converting them into something that is aesthetically attractive or practical that will capture those plastics for generations to come and at the same time start a national campaign where you can start to see the reduction of these products going into the environment. So that's where the thinking comes mm. from. It's such a massive problem, isn't it? I, I just think of the Aboriginal um, guys, rangers that I visited out at Trinity Inlet a year or two ago and all the plastic that comes from other countries. Well, I mean, it's just, where do you... This is where the world's mm. best practice comes from. Mm. And as a, somebody that's you know, right up in academia, you'll understand what I'm saying. <laughs> 
It's one thing to be able to educate our own population and to be able to capture here. But let me tell you, it won't be too long before, in fact, even now when we start this initiative, the overwhelming majority of plastics that we capture, particularly from the oceans and our, along our shorefront, is not being generated from Australia, it's from our northern neighbours. Mm-hmm. So this is the reason why we have to step up and be the world's best so that we can have our northern neighbours and others coming to us to learn how to do it. We've got to be able to do it in a simplistic way so that it can capture their imagination. We've got to do it in a cost-effective way so that even the poorer countries can afford to do it so that they can start to capture this stuff before it drifts to Australia. That's how we're going to make a difference. You know, when you talk about climate change and you talk about all sorts of impacts, there is very little we can do. You know, I mean, when you talk about climate change, we'll we'll shut down our economy, we'll get rid of all the fossil fuels immediately. Let's, Let's all hope we can do it, and we will. Technology will allow us to do it, but it's not going to take a decade. It's going to take you know several decades before we're in that. And our hydrogen initiative in Moss in um, Daintree can contribute to that. But even if we were to turn off the light and vacate Australia in its entirety tomorrow, it would make a less than one percent difference in the in the in the issues of climate change in the world. We've got to showcase that, like we do with our reefs, we've got to start doing practical things that people understand. And one of these is capturing. People now understand the fish are ingesting this. It's impacting on our, on our sea turtles and all the other creatures in the sea. But we're not going to be able to stop it by just sucking it out, sucking all the Australian stuff out. We've got to start to showcase the rest of the world that there's an easier way to do this, a practical way, a cost-affordable way of doing it and get them to do it in their backyards as well. How was it from your perspective watching this miracle election result as uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison described it? Did you, were you surprised by this uh, uh, result? That was a bit of a shock to some, I suppose. <coughs> I was. Look, I, I was quietly, and it was reported, I was confident, quietly confident that I would have the capacity to get across the line. I, you know, I, and when you come up to election time, and I've done it now eight times, I always look at what have I done in that period. I mean, you read the nonsense in the paper, you know, what's he done? He's too old. He's, you know, he's been sitting there for too long. We need refreshment. We need new, new ideas. We need somebody that's actually going to do something. But when you, when, you, when you scrape away all the bullshit and you look at the facts, you talk to the people that come into this office, people that are walking into the street, they go, oh, thank you, you did something such and such. You know, I had one the other day when I, walk, I was doing the polling booths, and this fellow came up to me and he said, oh, hello, Warren, do you remember me? And I said, well, no. And you remember my wife? No. Right. Well, you helped us 20 years ago by getting the right, getting a visa, intervening and getting a visa for my wife so that we could get married. And here we are 20 years later and we want to say thank you. Now, there's a whole range of issues that we've dealt through. And I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a figurehead. It's my staff that do the, do a lot of the hard work. But over that years, over the years, of course, I've built up a reputation that I'm not one that will be totally compliant with party policy. I mean, uh, medical cannabis, same-sex marriage, things like that. I really march to my own tune and that's the reason why I was on the executive for eight years, 
up until 2006 when I resigned so that I could uh, uh, not contest the, the 2007 election. I was the chief whip when I came back in 2013, uh, 2010, but I then refused to accept a portfolio because if I'd accepted a ministerial job, which was offered to me not once but about five times over, over a couple of prime ministers, as soon as I'd done that, I would, it would have negated any, any opportunity for me to continue to campaign for same-sex marriage because I would have to comply with party policies. So I, and I made it quite clear that's why I would do it. And I was successful. And this is the reason why I've said, you know, I, I have been very influential in determining these uh, national policies. And so this is why I commit myself in the three years, I want to have a national policy on dealing with these plastics. I've actually already spoken to the Prime Minister about it, and he is 100% behind. He thinks it's a brilliant initiative. So, so that's what I do in that area, um, and I'll continue to do that. On an international level, I've also been very, very successful with my advocacy on TB. I am on the global tuberculosis I'm a Global Tuberculosis Caucus Executive. Um, I spent the three months in New York in 2017 and spent all of that three months lobbying various heads of state, and I think 70-something of them, and was successful in having the high-level meeting in the United Nations uh, in New York, the Leaders' Week. I had three of the five days dedicated to tuberculosis, first of its type in the world. I was the only member of parliament in the world that was acknowledged for my contribution on the floor of the United Nations during that high level week. So, you know, you'll be proud of that. And there's still a lot of work to be done. I've got, uh, the last time I lobbied, I was successful in getting $200 million from the Australian government for um, the uh, Global Fund. Um, this is due for replenishment now and I'll be lobbying for $300 million because there's still a lot of work in relation to immunisation, which we still haven't got a, a, a vaccine, a, a good one for it, and also uh, to, to get rid of TB as a scourge. There's no reason why we can't do to TB what we've already done with malaria and what we've done with HIV. So there's another three years that I can contribute as well and I need to be a member of parliament to be able to be on this caucus and I'm one of a handful that are on the executive. So, so that's what motivated you to have another go? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things here that are that are partly finished. Uh, also, my staff, I mean, they are just absolutely wonderful. And it's all very well to talk about renewal and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, as I, as I said when I won the election, there is, for all of those that are saying, oh, you're too old or you've been there too long or whatever, many a fine tune is played on an old fiddle. That was Federal Member for Leichhardt, Warren Inch, ending this episode of A Middle Ground. You can follow and subscribe to this Griffith University podcast on your podcast provider, iTunes or SoundCloud. 